Chapter 12 of Woodcraft Boys at Sunset Island. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Woodcraft Boys at Sunset Island by May Falwell Hoisington and Lillian Elizabeth Roy. Chapter 12 The Pirates of Sily Ledge. Say, Fred, did you see the Boston steamer go past this morning? asked Billy, wonderingly, one day. Come to think of it, I didn't. Neither did I, said Dudley. Nor I, added Paul. It gets to be such a habit when the boats go past, up in the morning and down at night, that their absence is quite noticeable, said Fred. But the boys forgot about the failure of the big white steamer to put in her appearance as usual. That afternoon, they were out with the captain when a fisherman from Saturday Cove hailed them. Hey, captain, the old Katadin's gone ashore on Sily Ledge this morning. You don't tell, cried the astonished captain. That's why we didn't see her go by, said Billy. Can they get her off? Fred shouted after the informer. Nah, they tells me she's a total rack. The boys looked at each other while the same desire sprang up in each heart to visit that wreck. Can't we go down and see her, captain? asked Billy. Well, it's pretty far out to sea off Monhagen. And besides, the ground swells bad there, hesitated Captain Ed. Captain, if Aunt Miriam will lend us the Zeus and Benton goes along, don't you suppose it will be all right, urged Fred. The captain had hard work hiding his own desire to go, being stirred by inherited beachcombing tendencies. Hence he agreed to the exciting plan. Without the loss of any time, the boys sailed over to Iola Bella and, in a pleading manner, broached the subject to their aunt. They must not seem too eager or the trip too exciting or she would refuse her consent. Rumor had traveled swiftly so that Captain Benton had heard and also was stirred by the spirits of his ancestors to visit that wreck. Hence he thought it was perfectly safe and a most delightful excursion for the boys to take. Early the next morning, therefore, the launch set out for Old Sily Ledge. Down past Camden, around Owl's Head, through the narrow Muscle Ridges Channel, past Whitehead and out to open sea, steered the captain of the Zeus. Well for the boys that the big launch was seaworthy craft that she was. Before they caught sight of the doomed steamer, the ground swell had gotten in its deadly work. Three seasick lads lay limply on the cushions, feeling that the Zeus was going down, never to climb again, as she dropped into the hollows between the swells. Soon, however, as she rose on the crest of each great wave, the steering sight of hundreds of craft converging with the Zeus to a common center revived the drooping spirits of the boys and the green sensations gradually disappeared. She must be abandoned all right, remarked Captain Ed. Taint curiosity what brings all them craft here, hinted Captain Benton. The boys pricked up their ears. What did the captains mean? I always knew the Matenicus and Isle of Old Fellers were pirates at heart, sneered Captain Ed. Well, you see, it ain't stealin'. Not exactly, you know, argued Benton. Oh, sure not. Float Sam and Jet Sam's anybody's pickin'. And she's all insured anyhow, considered Captain Ed. You don't mean to say that all these folks are here to grab something from that steamer, cried Fred aghast. That's just it, replied the captain. Ooh, oh, if that isn't stealing in the eye of the law, why can't we pick up something too? Just a souvenir, you know, ventured Billy, breathlessly. By this time, they were drawing closer to the wreck. Careened over, rolling and crunching in the heavy swells, 
The Kata Din was too dangerous for close quarters, and in fact, that was the only thing that kept the circling boats at a distance from her. The greed of the watchers was stimulated by the stray bits of wreckage that were seen swashing around, and so contagious is the desire to get something for nothing, especially when the law smiles leniently upon the pirate, that the boys and captains in the Zeus, otherwise peaceable law-abiding Americans, now felt the maddening frenzy to secure a prize too. Suddenly, a fierce gust of wind and a seventh wave struck the hapless boat at the same time, raising her up only to crash her down amidships on the backbone of old Siley. With the rending and splitting heard above the roar of the breakers, the steamer broke in two and began to vomit forth her cargo. After that, pandemonium reigned. The boys could never tell just when they too turned into lawless pirates. In the wild scramble for the floating cases from the hold of the steamer, many a launch and boat had the bows towed in. Free fights ensued, and the butts of oars were used with telling effect on the heads of others. Of course, the Zeus did not engage in this warfare, but she soon was piled high with miscellaneous freight. As for the prizes contained in that cargo, it wasn't a time to pick and choose, but a case of grab and get before it sank from sight. A crate floated near the boys, and piercing squeals from inside drew the attention of the pirates of the Zeus to it. It's a pig, cried Dudley. Oh, let's rescue it before it drowns, called Paul. When the captains and Fred Annerly succeeded in hauling the heavy crate and board, poor Piggy's squeals had ceased. Let's use first aid on it, exclaimed Billy eagerly. He's a fine-looking short, all right, commented Benton. Let's wrench off the slats on top and get him out. He'll take up less room uncrated, suggested Captain Ed. We can try first aid on him, then, giggled Paul. As the crate was opened and Piggy removed, Billy said, I bet he was a prize pig for the Belfast Fair. Here, Captain, let us look at the address on the crate and see where he was going, exclaimed Fred. But no ink mark was left on the case, and the tag that had been tagged to the wood was soaked off by the water. So the rescuing party were none the wiser after the examination. Well, Rose Pig ain't to be sneezed at anyway, said Benton. But just then, Piggy revived and slipped from Benton's hold. He started a circus in the launch with all hands trying to catch him, and more than once the boys very nearly fell into the water in their mad scramble to grab him. Finally, the unruly passenger was cornered and hogtied. We'll give him to Uncle Tom because none of us islanders can use him, suggested Fred. And so Piggy was destined to find a temporary resting place on the farm at Rosemary. It had taken three hours to sail down Old Siley Ledge and it was long past lunchtime before the excited pirates thought of anything so commonplace as eating. A large broken box of fancy biscuits reminded them that they could feel hungry now that the first excitement was over, and the sandwiches Mose had packed in the lunch soon disappeared. The erstwhile seasick boys, being hollow clean down to their toes, caused the lunch to melt away like ice in a hot sun. Then followed the slightly soggy and salted crackers. With sighs of regrets, the two captains then suggested that they turn for the homeward trip. Oh, just one more haul, cried Billy, spearing for a floating case near at hand. Where can you find room to stack any more? asked Penton. Oh, this is a case of biscuit. Fancy mix too, exclaimed Billy, having guided the prize to the side of the launch. Without demur, the case of crackers was brought in board and then Fred called out. There's a little box floating away from us. Precious goods come in small packages, you know. So we are to get that. Another feller's after it. Quick, hurry up, cried Paul. The pirates on the Zeus won the race and the small, half-summer's box was carefully lifted aboard. Now, I insist that we start home, declared Captain Ed. 
Even as it is, we won't get there until after dark, added Benton. Never mind, we've done a big day's work, chuckled Fred. I should say so, gee, pigs, crackers and whatnot, added Billy gloatingly. Ed, I bet those vultures won't leave a stick on that boat. Why, every little shack down the bay will have one of them red plush chairs from the saloon, and everyone on the Metanicus will be sleeping on good mattresses after they're dried out, grumbled Benton. On the way home, the boys investigated their treasure trove. The small box that had caused such a lively race was found to contain a gross of Ingersoll watches, but most of them were utterly spoiled from the salt water bath. The better ones, packed individually in small, close-fitting cases, proved to be in fairly good condition. Oh, what joy to the hearts of these mariners! To hear the ticking of a watch on every passenger of the Zeus, a watch that might be consulted as often as one liked without regard to the others. Here's the last one of the good lot. What shall we do with it? asked Dudley. Tie it around the porker's neck, laughed Paul. Oh no, let's take it home to Mose. He'll be tickled to pieces with it, exclaimed Billy. So the little box was tucked in Billy's pocket to be given to the appreciative cook. Then the boys turned over another case. Here, boys, don't open up anything else or the clutter will choke the engine, begged Benton. They laughed at that but promised to wait for landing before investigating any further. That night, the islanders passed a delirious time amidst the contents of the cases picked up from the Katahdin. The first case opened was found to be packed with woodenware, breadboards, chopping bowls, potato mashers, and such. Great Scott! Here's enough wood to build a house, said Paul. I'll tell you what. These oval and round breadboards'll make dandy totems for everyone, cried Billy. That's what they will. And the mashers will do for the tom-toms when we hold council, added Dudley. Now don't be silly. You know there wouldn't be any drumhead left in the tom-tom if you boys beat time with one of those wooden potato mashers, said Fred, trying to pry off a slat. Where are you going? asked Paul of Billy, who had piled an armful high with wooden dishes. Give him to Mose. He needed some new kitchenware. At that, Paul and Dudley each caught up a wooden bowl and a wooden masher and marched after Billy, waiting time for his steps. Hey, Mose, here's your answer to prayer. I heard you last week saying that you hoped the good Lord would send you some kitchen dishes mighty quick, laughed Billy. Ah, no deed, no child. Most neighbor prayed no wicked prayer like that. Maybe that wreck could be laid to the door over such a prayer, and most sure ain't guilty of that. But what I did say was, I wished the dear Lord would take pity on poor Mose and send him some dishes mighty quick. There's a heap of difference, explained the devout cook. Well, forget the prayer that caused the wreck and come in to see what else we got, teased Dudley at last. Mose was only too pleased to be invited to assist at the prize packages, but he looked askance at the debris that covered the floor of the bungalow. Why didn't you all wait for morning to unpack this messy stuff out on the ground? Wait, my goodness, we could hardly wait to get through supper, exclaimed Billy. While they were talking, the captain brought in another case which he had wheeled up from the launch. This case must have been consigned to a hardware merchant or some poultry man as it was filled with wire nests for chickens. This sure is a lottery, laughed Fred. Yes, and we lost out on this draw, chuckled Captain Ed. Well, these can't be used anyway. "'Cause we never keep chickens on the island,' said Billy regretfully. "'You might take them over to your Uncle Tom,' ventured Paul. "'He won't need more than three or four, and look at all of these,' replied Fred. "'How many do you suppose there are?' wondered Dudley, and Billy began to unwire one bundle. 
As he took out one after another of the closely packed wireframes, the boys counted until they found they were 25 in a pack. Say, for pity's sake, don't unwire anymore. There's 20 bundles of them in all, laughed the captain. That's 500 wire baskets. Gee, we'd be swamped all right, added Billy. We'll give all the farmers on the mainland and I'll borrow some, said Paul. We might make a good trade on them for eggs and butter, remarked the businessman of the crowd. Ha ha, most always said Billy will be a millionaire someday, laughed the cook. I tell you what we might do with some of them, now suggested the captain thoughtfully. Last summer, I had some old ones that I threw out and my wife filled them with moss and loam, then planted some sort of ferns in them. When they were wired and hung up on the porch, they looked mighty fine, I can tell you. Great, that's just what we'll do for a surprise. We'll hang them all around the bungalow for mother, cried Billy. And make a lot for Aunt Miriam for lending us the Zeus, added Fred. We can go to Sprague's Cove and dig up some of those swell ferns. And there are whole carpets of thick moss there, said Billy eagerly. Then we've found a use for the nests, sighed Paul, who feared to find any stock on hand valueless. The next case was filled with stationers' assorted goods. Alas, the briny had done its worst here. The pens, knife blades, and the wire paper holders were already rusting, and besides that, a peculiar glutinous slime covered the articles in the case. It was the same sour odor that coming from inside of the case had first attracted the boy's attention to the box when the captain brought it in. Wire baskets. Gee, do we need any more? asked Dudley sarcastically. What's all this gooey slime? wondered Paul, disgusted with the mess he got all over his hands as he tried to pull out a package. As the boys delved deeper into the case and brought out boxes and stationery, all patterned by red and blue and black ink, which had soaken through from broken bottles, they found the horrid smelly jelly diluted by salt water to have mixed in with everything else. Ah, the mystery's solved, cried Fred, lifting a broken carton of paste powder from the case. Ugh, it's got ready-made in the ocean and spread itself wherever it was not wanted, said Paul with disgust. Let me take care of that goo case, offered Mose. I can clean em all out in the morning and maybe fin a heap of paper so's Paul and Dudley can write home every week, regular. All right, let Mose do it, laughed Billy. But I'm telling you right here, if I seen a nice penknife with a white pearl handle, I sure will take it for pay. Anything you find, Mose, go as far as you like, promised Fred. Mose left the cutlery in kerosene overnight, thereby cleaning off the rust and polishing up the items. The paper and other passably good articles he cleaned off fairly well and kept them on hand for the children to use. The last of the case contained dire disappointment. The groceries therein were discovered to be utterly ruined. Salt, sugar, cereals, coffee and other foodstuffs. Now I'm glad we stopped and got that last case of crackers, declared Dudley. So am I, added Paul, hiding a wide yawn behind a case. Is this all now? demanded Billy. All for tonight, I guess, said Fred. Gee, but I'm glad. I'm dog-tired, sighed Billy. We all are. Let's go to bed, cried Paul. The next day, the Iola Bella and Rosemary contingent came early to hear all about the piratical raid on the seas about Siley Ledge and the boys relived again their thrilling adventure in relating them to their interested audience. The story told, Mose appeared with lemonade and crackers. Oh, just the thing, ladies. Won't you partake of our Pirate's Prize brand of biscuits, sultanas filled with ocean currants, and genuine saltines fresh from the Kathadin, joked Fred, bowing. 
Of course, the ladies laughed, and while they all munched the crackers, the boys spoke of hanging baskets they expected to have ready soon. Oh, and by the way, boys, Uncle Tom told me to be sure and thank you for the pig, although he was quite overwhelmed at first. Fancy having a nice fat pig fished out of the ocean for you, exclaimed Aunt Edith. He's going to keep it, isn't he? Anxiously asked Paul. Oh, certainly, for a time anyways. We have called it Kathadin for it proved its undisputed right to the name by making such free use of the last syllable in the name. This amused the boys tremendously, and they felt relieved to find that Uncle Tom had gladly accepted the foundling. Speaking of fern baskets, where are you going for the ferns? asked Elizabeth. We thought of going to Sprague's Cove for them, replied Fred. Oh, do take us with you then, cried Miriam. Yes, Fred, do. Then I can go off on a little hunting trip by myself, said Billy eagerly. As long as you don't shoot anywhere near us, it will suit me, warned Fred. Oh, I'll keep a mile or more away. Anyway, you know I'm not Paul or Dudley, who hit a mark at right angles to their target, teased Billy. So the girls were permitted to go on the cruise and help dig up some of the beautiful ferns and wonderful moss found at Sprague's Cove. A keg full of leaf mold was also taken for the nourishment of the roots of the fern. Meantime, Billy planned to land at Adam's Beach and hunt for rabbits and red squirrels. But before he quite reached the shore, he saw a black, dog-like head glide through the water. It dove, but it reappeared again and Billy stopped the engine of his launch. Quietly he waited, for he knew the curiosity of the seal would draw it nearer and perhaps in range of his rifle. He took great care not to show the gun and thus stood waiting. His knowledge of the habits of the harbor seal proved to be correct, for the smooth, dark head popped up quite near the bow of the launch. He fired, but the seal sank leaving a pool of blood on the surface of the water. Billy knew that he had lost his prey unless it was lying in shallow enough water for him to retrieve it. For a dead seal sinks like lead. He slowly motored over to the place where the red tinge was now mingling with the water and sounded carefully with an oar. Oh joy! I guess I can get him, cried Billy to himself as the oar touched bottom at about six feet depth. It's high water now too, and that's lucky for me, he soliloquized. When the water had cleared, Billy plainly saw the dead seal lying on a ledge. He pondered the situation well, then decided to wait and watch the seal, for he feared that with the wash of the uptide, he would never find it again if he left the place. When the returning mossbacks came in sight with their launch, he would hail them to come and help him. Finally, the chugging of the engine was heard and Billy hailed the captain and Fred. I've got a seal. Come and help me get him, yelled Billy, contradictorily. With the captain and Fred aiding, Billy used the oar to push a slip noose under and around the seal's tail and hauled it up to the surface. With considerable labor, it was pulled on board, but its bleeding head was left hanging over the side of the launch. Once at the island, the seal was hauled up on the rocks and Billy started to skin it. Uncle Tom came for the girls before this work had been completed, and they waved hands at the busy boy, shouting as they left the float stage. Good riddance to the seal. We are not sorry to leave that awful smell. Why, the whole island is permeated with it. Just rather sickening, isn't it? grinned Billy, standing up to stretch his lame back. It's just as well mother isn't here now. The next few days were devoted by Billy and Fred to the curing and tanning of the seal skin. It was no easy job either. The scraping alone occupied many hours, but nothing seemed like too much trouble for such a trophy. Billy, did you know there's a bounty on the harbor seals? asked Captain Ed one morning. If you just take the chin whiskers to the post office, at Sabbath Day Harbor, they'll give you a dollar for them. Me for that dollar, declared Billy. 
So that afternoon, Captain Ed handed Billy a written statement for evidence that the boys caught the seal. The next day, the boys made another trip to Isleboro, and much to the young Nimrod's satisfaction, the dollar was forthcoming without delay. There won't be any seals left in a few years from now, remarked the elderly postmaster to Billy. Wall, they come near to ruin the salmon fisheries, and something had to be done about them, added a sailor man. Yes, sir, said a fisherman who lounged near the door. I've seen a salmon wear, just hung full of salmon heads, all that them seals left the fishermen. But I always kinda liked the seals and it's pretty they had to be killed off, said the postmaster sympathetically. A scornful glance from the fisherman and a sniff from the sailor were the only answers vouchsafed the remark. Fred and Billy finished the work on the seal that day and the next morning the captain said he had the collar ready for the flagpole. The boys helped him with the work and when all was ready, the snowy staff was successfully raised. Now everyone was eager to see the flag wave from the top, but they had agreed to wait for their mother's homecoming. To divert their attention, the captain made a suggestion. Who's going to help me with the ends of the new cable for the Madrick, sailor fashion? So they worked gaily at this for a time, but what boy can handle a fine piece of rope and resist the excitement of having a swing? Captain, lend us your new rope for a while, asked Billy. What for? I have a plan for dandy swing and besides, it will take the lay out of your cable, replied Billy diplomatically. The captain chuckled and consented. Indeed, he offered to help the boys secure the ends, but they knew they could manage. The swing proved to be all Billy had hoped for. In fact, so thrilling was the experience of that swing that the captain regretted his cooperation for he felt there lurked too much risk to life and limb while it was being used. Hence, he claimed the right to take it the following day for the metric. But how the boys did enjoy it while it lasted. Billy demurred vehemently as Captain Ed said he had to use the cable, so the captain craftily hinted, You ain't been over to Rosemary after them porcupines yet. I suppose your Uncle Tom's orchard is near about spoiled by now. Gee, that's so. I ought to go after them at once. I have to go over to the cove for supplies. Moses forever wanting a yeast cake, it seems. You might go with me and stay all night at your Uncle Tom's and come back tomorrow with a fine quill pig, eh? Continued the subtle captain. Mo stood by watching the boy swing and he heard the conversation. He grinned for he knew the captain's tactics well, but he took a certain pride in the looks of his islanders. Child, you sure must chain them old duds if you're gonna make a visit. I ain't going to low you for Ma's son to look like a sure enough tramp. Your heart needs trimming too. Oh, Peshaw Mose, what difference does it make? It will be night and I'm going hunting so no one will see me, argued Billy. Hush your complaining now, Bill. Come in and mind your guardian, laughed Mose encouragingly. Go on, Billy, you know he's right. Rosemary is not a camp and who knows who'll be visiting there. You'd disgrace us and your relations if you were seen in the duds that came out of the ark, declared Fred. Billy realized he was in the minority on this vote, so he submitted to Moses' barbering, but with much grumbling. Such a lot of fussing for a hunting trip, he observed. But the haircutter paid no attention to the complaint just then, as he had his mind full of other plans. Whilst I've got a ban in the barber business, your boys come along this hairdressing parlor late style cuts. Ouch! That was my ear. Darn your latest style cuts, cried Billy impatiently. Was that your ear, child? Sure enough, they seems to grow, just like your hair. I disremembered they was so big, and that hokum I teched and whiffed the shears. A laugh followed this joke on Billy, and that young man departed to dress in a ruffled frame of mind. 
The next morning, about nine o'clock, Paul discovered the captain and Billy coming towards the island in the chugging boat. He called to the other boys and they all ran down to Treasure Cove to meet the two sailors. On the launch stood Billy grinning his widest and holding aloft a porcupine. As he came within hearing, he shouted, Oh, it's such a cinch to catch porcupines. Never got anything so dead easy. Uncle Tom shot one too, grandly. After coming ashore, the captain handed Fred a letter which bore the Boston postmark and began, How Kola Vita Tonkan. The others stood at hand to hear any possible news from Mrs. Remington, and Fred hastily perused the pages. Well, I'll be bliffed. Mother writes that she met Mrs. Baker and Mrs. Hubert in Boston, and they are all going to take a motor trip from their camp up through Maine. Are they coming here? queried Billy eagerly. Later, maybe. Mother says she invited them all to come and spend the day with us on the island, and they seem quite taken with the idea. Does she say whether any of the girls or boys will be with them on the trip? asked Dudley. Maybe my sister Hilda will be with them, added Paul. I don't know, because mother merely says they were attending a suffrage convention in Boston. You know what ardent members both Mrs. Baker and Mrs. Hubert are. And they had a nice long talk, but nothing more is said in this letter, said Fred. I wish the doctor would come. He's awfully good fun, said Billy. We won't know until mother gets home. Then she'll tell us all about it. Then we could have that swell clam bake, eh? said Paul. Do you know we've got ten big lobsters in the car now? I'll bet we will have lot more by the time mother gets home, exclaimed Billy. This hope spurred the boys to even greater efforts to bait the traps enticingly and tend out for results. End of chapter 12